Open up your Bibles, church, to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We will look together at verses 1 through 8. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Make sure you raise your hand if you do not have a copy of the sermon notes. You're going to need a copy of those as we go down through the passage today. So raise your hand if you don't have a copy. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundations of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing that they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, met for them by whom it is dressed, receives blessings from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, I'd like to start off this second part of our sermon, Who Falls Away, by drawing your attention to your sermon notes to a description, a very clear, concise, and biblical description of the doctrine of justification. So as part of my introduction, just quickly go there. You see this comes from the Second London Confession, the 1689 Baptist Confession, chapter 11, paragraph 1, dealing with the doctrine of justification, where it says, quote, "...those whom God effectually calls, He also freely justifies." How does he do this? Notice he does it not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins. It goes on to say, not for anything wrought in them, that means worked within them, or done by them, any actions done by them, but it is done, the pardon of their sins, notice what it says, for, the, for Christ's sake alone. It goes on to say, They're justified not by imputing faith itself, that is the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but how? Look at your your sermon notes. By imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole, that is complete, and their soul, that is alone, for their whole and soul Righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is a gift of God, end quote. Well, church, I start off with this clear gospel statement of how ill-deserving sinners are justified through the sole obedience of Christ alone precisely because I believe that this is what is lying under the surface of this entire warning passage that we've been considering last week and now this week. 
Based upon a proper interpretation of verses 1 and 2, we've convincingly concluded that the driving concern for this inspired writer to the Hebrews is that some within this early church must have been evidencing the idea or toying around with the idea of either A, returning back to Judaism altogether and abandoning the new covenant arrangement that was accomplished and sealed in Jesus Christ, or B, which I think is more probable, they were somehow wanting to mix old covenant arrangements or principles with the new covenant gospel. Now, not to give you too much recap, but we gather all of this interpretation from verses 1 and 2, where in verse 1 it says, let us go on to maturity. And how do they go on to maturity, if you recall? By not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And then in verse 2, it describes ceremonial washings, the doctrine of baptisms. It describes the act of imputing, laying on of hands, sins onto animals. And so we dealt with all of that. And by them thinking this way in verses 1 and 2, them toying around with this idea of somehow blending the Old Covenant with the New Covenant and therefore not going on to maturity of solely trusting in Christ and Christ alone, their great high priest, they're really, as you see in your sermon notes, demonstrating two things, church. They lacked a genuine understanding of the New Covenant Gospel itself. The New Covenant Gospel, which this preacher in Hebrews is going to demonstrate declares exclusive sufficiency of Christ and his work of justification, his work of sanctification, and his work of preservation unto all of those who the Father gives him and who believes and who trusts upon him and him alone. Secondly, they demonstrated that they did not truly accept Jesus as the foretold Messiah who was foretold throughout all of the Old Testament as coming, being the great high priest that would make complete and final sacrifice for the sins of God's people once and for all. And in so much that's being demonstrated in our text today, that they do not, even though they profess it, they do not genuinely, wholeheartedly believe the new covenant claims of how they are justified through Christ and Christ alone how they are preserved and how they are sanctified through Christ and Christ alone, if they reject and don't wholeheartedly agree that he has, in fact, made once and for all complete atonement for their sins, they will, as verse 6 says today, fall away. And if they do, verse 4, it is impossible to ever rescue them. Well, how are we going to consider part 2? of this text, verses 4 through 8, under the sermon title, Who Falls Away, Part 2. Well, what I want to do is look at verses 6 through 8, namely, most of our time is going to be in verse 6, finishing, exegeting that verse, and then we will have looked at all verses 4 through 8. And then afterwards, I want us to consider, secondly, the three most popular interpretations And after considering those, I believe it will become abundantly clear to us that uh, which one is the correct one of how we should interpret these warning passages, which cause Christians no little uh, cause for trouble and doubt in their walk with the Lord. And so this has been a very good Bible teaching, you know, study going through this text. Let's first consider 
verse 6. As you see in your sermon notes, what I'm describing as the irretrievable fall. Now, in the first message last week, we began by understanding the words impossible in verse 4. We looked at the word renew here in verse 6. And we rightly concluded that this passage, verses 4 through 8, is clearly teaching something, beloved, that those who are described in these verses may lose, truly lose whatever it was they possessed in the descriptions that are outlined in verses 4 and 5 and can never be recovered to their previous condition. And so now we come to this passage in 6 through 8, specifically verse 6, that provides a description of those who succumb to what I'm calling an irretrievable fall. Look at verse 6 with me. I give it to you in your notes how some of the modern translations translate. I think, I think it's a better translation than the authorized version. It says in verse 6, If they shall fall away, those described, verses 4 and 5, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing, or the modern translations say, since, why is it um, that they can't be renewed again under repentance? Since they crucify to themselves, here's the phrase, they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. The irretrievable fall we see includes this horrible act of, quote, crucifying to themselves the Son of God afresh and putting Him to an open shame. And so therefore we must properly understand what does this phrase in verse 6 of the irretrievable fall really mean. Well, I want to handle this, the meaning of this phrase, in two ways. The first way is I want us to consider in the form of a question, can this text mean what some attribute to it? That there are individuals, described in verses 4 and 5, who in some way or another continue to willfully sin against God and in doing so, they place themselves out of the long-suffering arm of God's reach to give them mercy and grace and to retrieve them. Or in other words, is there some people who rebelliously, hard-heartedly, willfully continue to sin and can never be granted mercy and forgiveness? Well, first of all, in answering that question to see if that could be a right interpretation of this phrase in verse 6, let me ask you something. Um, Aren't all sins willful? Whether it's the sin of commission, where we willingly and knowingly do what we're not supposed to do, or it's the sin of omission, we knowingly and willingly don't do what we're supposed to do. None of them are accidents. Every sin you commit is a willful sin. And so it, 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 is it, can it be rightly interpreted that every time a sin is done willfully, that eventually it places you outside of the long stretched arm of mercy from God? Well, I think that you'll see from the scriptures, allowing scripture to interpret that question for us, that that's not the right interpretation of what is meant by this phrase in verse 6. I've given you three uh, sermon texts, I mean, I'm sorry, not sermon texts. I've given you three Bible texts that I think demonstrates this. Uh, I believe it's conclusive because it draws upon the attributes of God and it also explicitly says that there's forgiveness of sin for those who confess it. Even though I've just given you three, there's many more we could go to, but let's, let's just look at these three. 
as they convince us that in this first consideration, the text cannot mean that. Look with me here at 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. The Bible says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He, referring to the merciful God, He is faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, just from this verse, there's many more we could go to. Romans chapter 7, I believe, is a good one. Verses 15 to 25 to demonstrate that there is willful, continual sin in a believer's life. And we see that there's a remedy here for those sins of being preserved, being kept by God, is that we confess those sins. We acknowledge our iniquities. We humble ourselves before the merciful throne of the triune God. And we say, I am a sinner. Forgive me. I hate this. Help me. Grow me. Persevere and keep me. But also, there's the attributes of God that are all through Scripture demonstrating that He is a long-suffering, patient God. Look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 9 in your sermon notes. Where the Bible says, To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness though we have rebelled against him. Now, just put this in context for a moment. When it says we have rebelled against him, oh yeah, they rebelled against him multiple times. Uh, generation after generation after generation. You, we know this, right? Because we're reading through in our Old Testament reading as a church through the book of Jeremiah. And what are we hearing? What are we seeing? Well, we read through Isaiah. Now we're in Jeremiah. And we see that they're continuing to rebel against God, but he continues to offer them what? Forgiveness and repentance. Look at Jeremiah chapter three in your sermon notes. Since we were just referring to Jeremiah, we read this a couple weeks ago. What was the prophet given the charge to proclaim to them? Well, we see here, he was to go and proclaim, quote, these words toward the north, the rebellious north, remember, and say, return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause my anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, saith the Lord, only acknowledge your iniquities, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, end quote. From just these sample texts, I hope you would agree that it is correct to allow Scripture to conclude for us that there is always forgiveness available to those who seek mercy from the Lord by acknowledging their iniquities and sin and pleading for His forgiveness. And so we cannot interpret that text as that someone can sin so much that there's never forgiveness and mercy if they acknowledge their iniquities, confess and repent and trust upon God's Messiah that they can be restored. So that cannot be the right interpretation of this phrase of the irretrievable fall. So let's consider it from a different angle in our second consideration. The second consideration is paying attention to the latter half of the phrase. I think that's key to correctly interpreting the meaning of this passage. The phrase again, look at verse 6. The irretrievable fall is this act of crucifying the Son of God afresh and putting Him to an open shame. Put to an open shame. Look at your sermon notes. You see I've given to you in the Greek. That phrase carries with it the idea to be set forth 
as a public example, or that is, someone who's made an example of. I think we get a little bit more clear understanding of what's being meant here when we look at the one other place in Scripture that this Greek word is translated for us into the English in Matthew 1.19. The context here, of course, in Matthew 1.19 is Joseph has, um, you know, received the announcement from the Lord through a dream that Mary is her, the, the, the child she is carrying was not through an adulterous affair, uh, but it was a conception, an immaculate conception by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the text says in Matthew 1, 19, Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her, here it is, this is the, the Greek word, Look, notice how it's translated here, a public example, he was minded to put her away privately or secretly. Well, we, we see from Matthew 1, 19, and we ascertain that this phrase, put him to an open shame in the Greek, carrying with it the idea someone made a public example, they suggest do they not exposing a person to all the public society as what? A criminal. Exposing someone to a lawbreaker. Now this is helping us because let me ask you a question as we're pursuing our answer. According to the wicked men, as recorded in Matthew 26 and chapter 27, who sat on the Jewish Sanhedrin high court, what was it, church? What was the reason that they handed Jesus over to the Roman governor to be crucified and murdered. In other words, what was the charge? He had to be a lawbreaker. He had to be evidenced as a criminal. What was the charge against our Lord that he ought to be made a public example of? It was blasphemy, wasn't it? It was blasphemy. And they brought him before Pontius Pilate. And then here, this man claims to be God. This man needs to die. He needs to be made an example of. He needs to be crucified so that no one else ever breaks this law. You see in your sermon notes, just a recording there of Matthew 26, what happened. The high priest, it says, quote, he rent his clothes and he said, he, referring to Jesus, has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? Puts the question before the court in session. And to the crowd, and the court answered, they answered and said, he is guilty of death, end quote. Well, how does all of this spade work that we're doing in the Greek and exegeting the word over at Matthew, how does this help us, beloved, flesh out our understanding of the irretrievable fall in verse 6? I think it has everything to do with it. Everything to do with it. And again, it comes back to verses 1 and 2 and how we rightly handle that. You see, by toying with the idea of returning to Judaism, that is, the Old Covenant arrangement and its works principle, or somehow seeking to mix the Old Covenant and its work principle and bringing it alongside the New Covenant work of Christ, these professors, described in verses 4 through 5, they would be categorically rejecting the pure gospel altogether by doing that. They would be rejecting its claims of who Jesus said he was and what it is that he accomplished upon the cross. Such a rejection of the biblical Christ, 
such a rejection of his biblical gospel would, as it were, identify these professors in verses 4 through 5, not with Jesus' true, genuine disciples and believers, but would identify these professors with Jesus' original murderers, as recorded in the book of Matthew 26 to 28, and not only identify these professors with his murderers, but also the accusations that his enemies brought against him that he was an imposter, therefore rendering his atoning work upon the cross a complete failure. Now, it's true, isn't it? These people that's being written to, whoever they were, they were probably dispersed. I mean, there is some reason why in the middle of his sermon here of exalting Christ, he starts to give these warning passages. So the inspired writer was very well acquainted with this church. He perhaps received a letter. He, by word of mouth, he received, there was something going on of what, of, uh, and that's why he's addressing it here. While this audience wasn't physically present on that dark hill called Golgotha, where Jesus' original enemies had him hung, right? Uh, speaking in manly terms, we know this in Acts chapter 2 was decreed by God and arranged by God for our freedom, our justification, and our salvation. But just speaking in humanly terms, they were there, right? And the original audience, they weren't present on Golgotha with them, but in spirit, they are, by seeking to confuse the old covenant with the new covenant, crucifying Christ. When you begin to bring a works principle into the new covenant realities of the gospel, that it's Christ and Christ alone, you are, in a sense, crucifying Christ, identifying yourself with his enemies, rejecting him as the Messiah, rejecting his entire cross work, and thereby you are putting him to an open shame. You are, as if it were, in spirit, in the same category, with all of his enemies on Golgotha, saying, make a public example of him, because he really, truly didn't fully accomplish everything that he's saying he's accomplishing. Wow. Wow. Now we understand true apostasy, don't we? It is rejecting Christ and Christ alone. I think that verses 4 through 8, it helps us to graphically kind of look at it of what's going on. I've given it to you in your sermon notes. There was a former profession that chapters 1 up until this point demonstrate that the people in this gathering, in this church that this letter is being written to, were making. Their former profession with their lips was this. Jesus is God's Messiah, and my justification rests upon His atoning work alone. That was their new covenant, right, profession at some point. They tasted it. They, they understood it. They were saying that. But somewhere along the line, especially looking at verses 1 and 2, what's sternly being warned against here, there begins to be creeping in an apostate profession. So there's the, por- the former new covenant profession, and then secondly, we see in the transitioning of these verses, or the flow of these verses, there's an apostate profession, which could sound something like this. Jesus is an, apost- is an apostor, and the gospel is just a devised fable. Now that's returning to Old Covenant Judaism altogether, which I don't think necessarily is the case. But more likely what's the case is this. Their apostate profession would sound like this. 
Jesus is the Messiah, and my justification rests partially upon his atoning work and partially upon my work, i.e., verse 2, something that I still have to do, ceremonial washings. Uh, How can the imputation of sins upon animals, laying on of hands, how can that still work in the new covenant system? Well, if they go from the former profession to their apostate profession, What's being taught in verses 4 through 8 is that it's impossible to renew them again to their new covenant understanding and profession. That it's God and God alone through Christ and Christ alone for the reason why they're justified. No, no, no. They will begin to morph. They will begin to adapt and they will begin to become comfortable in their apostate gospel and understanding of how they are justified. In other words, by their decided rejection of the new covenant distinctives, Christ, Christ alone, these professors are beyond the possibility of ever bending the knee once again to the sovereign grace of God in Christ and his glorious atoning work that they formally said that they professed. Rather, What has occurred is they have hardened their hearts against him and they have, as if it were, crucified him in their wrong understanding, in their wrong belief and practice, and they have sealed their hearts permanently unto their own destruction. Now, the inspired writer goes on, moving from verse 6. In verses 7 and 8, and he cites passages from Deuteronomy 11. And he does so to demonstrate their end, those who make this disastrous, irretrievable fall from the new covenant gospel purity, their end is to be burned. And that, of course, has immediate reference to the lake of fire that's reserved for the devil his fallen angels and all of those who are not rescued by the Messiah's atoning work upon the cross. Well, beloved, we have last week and now this week, we have considered carefully um, verses four, five, and six, seven and eight briefly. Those are just citations of Deuteronomy 11 to demonstrate the end result of the apostate who rejects and crucifies Christ and his new covenant gospel. And now I want us to consider the three most popular interpretations that have been amongst the visible church of these passages that have caused Christians so much trouble over the centuries. I've given it to you in your sermon notes, and I have not listed them in any sense of importance or anything of that nature. And I think after we review them, it's going to become clear for us which is the correct biblical interpretation. Now, the first interpretation that some take is that these verses, all of the warning passages, but specifically these that we've been considering, is referring to genuine believers who lose their salvation. So let's just consider that for a moment. The genuine, can this be talking about a genuine believer who loses their salvation? Now in this first interpretation, there are some 
who study this text and they contend with much force that true Christians specifically are being described here in the fullest evangelical sense, meaning they evangelical sense is that, that you know come to Christ and trust upon him and his work for you. And they've, they've experienced that. They believe that. They, they grab hold of that. They profess that. So in the fullest evangelical sense, and they conclude that these are true believers that may, and in some cases, totally and finally fall from grace and perish eternally in a lake of fire. Now, this understanding of those who believe this sort of doctrine about how they are justified how they are saved and how they are preserved or that is uh, temporally preserved. It has a name and it's classically young ones known as Arminianism. Arminianism. There's a whole historical context behind that. We don't have time to do that. Actually, we've done that on more than one occasions in our church history classes. But It's known as Arminianism, and there's denominations who historically hold to these beliefs that can be called Arminianism. One is the Roman Catholic Church. Another is the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, Methodists and their various forms of Wesleyanism, a Wesleyan Methodist Church. The Church of God, the Church of Christ, Assemblies of God, and I'm sure there's many, many others. Those are just the most Uh, prominent ones, Uh, the Nazarene, the Church of the Nazarene, they hold this view as well. Now I have two problems with this interpretation that I want to bring before you for your consideration. The first is, is that when you truly exegete and grammatically handle the words in verses four and five, which we faithfully did, it doesn't necessitate an interpretation that this is referring to a genuine believer. It doesn't necessitate that. But the Arminians interpret this and they conclude that it does. All right? Let me read for you what one Arminian theologian says about verses 4 and 5. He summarizes in his commentary and he says this. These texts form a description of true believers. They are not quasi-Christians. This language is fitting for those who are true members of the church, not halfway saved individuals, end quote. Well, you with me looked at these words. We considered them in their context. We considered them what they meant and what they could possibly mean. And we discovered that since they do not necessitate it being a true believer, that he is making a very exaggerated summarization, summarization and statement when he says these texts form a description of true believers, not quasi-Christians. Well, how can he say that, beloved? Do you remember just by way of recap in verse 4 where it says that it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, what the word enlightened meant? Yes, we acknowledge as faithful Bereans that it does mean as it does in Ephesians 1.18, I believe it was, that it can mean salvific enlightenment, where one's heart and one's mind is illuminated with the, sal- the salvation of Christ and the knowledge that floods the soul and releases you from darkness and the shackles of chains. Yes, it can mean that. But do you recall how it also can mean that it's someone who's just instructed, someone who has just been taught, and not having necessarily a salvific attachment to it? And then what about that phrase or the description of verse four? Look at your Bibles there. 
where it says they have tasted of the heavenly gifts. Tasted there, we looked at that in the Greek. It didn't mean a full uh, internal digestion. It meant just a sampling or a taste of it. You, you recall, of, you, you see, when you really study the words, you see that there's not the force of his interpretation that he's given it, that it has to form a description of true believers. And so therefore, if you ever have anyone coming at you, like we, like we observed last week in the message, who's, who holds to an Arminian position, that this is a description of a true believer, you can just shake your head in pity and say, you poor soul, have you ever taken the time to really in the Greek look at these words and study them? Because if you did, you would see that your argument doesn't have much force at all. And so therefore, you have to prove your theological conviction from a different angle, which is what we ought to do. And so that leads me to my second problem with this interpretation. Not only exegetically is it not demanded by the text, but this interpretation of the warning passage referring to a genuine believer who loses their salvation is highly problematic, all capital letters, with the rest of Scripture, beloved. Look at your sermon notes. I've given you 33 verses which demonstrate that a genuine believer is eternally secured and kept by the preserving power of God's Spirit and will never fall away. So not only does the text not demand it, the description here of, it, of being a true believer, but also this, this theological interpretation of these warning passages are contrary to many other places in the Scriptures. So in your own time, you can study those 33 examples I gave you, those Bible, uh, those scriptural citations, and conclude for yourself that this is highly problematic, the Arminian position. We're not going to go to all 33. Of course, we don't have time for that, but we do have time just for two of them, which are in the immediate context of this letter of Hebrews, who wrote chapter 6, right, as inspired by the Spirit. Let's look first at Hebrews 9, 12. This interpretation of someone losing their salvation is problematic just to this verse. Hebrews 9, 12, where the inspired writer said, It's neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his, Jesus' own blood, he entered in once, underline that word once, into the holy place, having obtained, notice the accomplished work. What did he obtain? The text says, temporal redemption. Oh! I'm sorry, he didn't say temporal redemption, did it? I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be cute here, but to prove a point, he obtained eternal redemption for us. Not limited redemption. He didn't uh, obtain temporal redemption. It's eternal redemption. But just to nail this nail, just to drive this nail further down, look at Hebrews 12, 28 that I've given you in sermon notes. Wherefore, we receive in a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Now the kingdom there is a possession as an heir of something spiritual. It's not talking about a physical kingdom. Wherefore we receive a spiritual kingdom that is redemption, that is salvation as adopted spiritual heirs of Christ and notice the text says, denoting that it's secured, it cannot be moved. Now, I've given it to you in the Greek in your sermon notes. That, that phrase, cannot be moved, it means literally unshakable, unmovable. And so this Arminian interpretation of this passage referring to a genuine believer 
who can lose their salvation is highly problematic for these reasons. Well, there's been many people who have recognized the problem of the Arminian interpretation, and that leads us to the second most popular interpretation of these warning passages, which is this, that yes, it's referring to a genuine believer who can lose something, but it's not the loss of their salvation. It's the loss of rewards. And so let's consider, can this text be referring to genuine believers who lose rewards? To get us started, I've given you in your sermon notes a quote, just a little bit lengthy quote, from a theologian who holds to this view. He says, look with me here, quote, it is not to be understood that in this passage that the Christians described commit apostasy in the traditional theological sense of that term, simply meaning they do not fall, I'm sorry, they do not finally deny Christ or his atoning work. However, they do fail to press on to spiritual maturity by virtue of continued disobedience to God's will and his word. So willful sin, continual sin, they, they fail to spiritually mature. Therefore, he concludes, the judgment that these believers incur does not involve loss of salvation. Rather, their judgment here in the text is more accurately understood as disciplining or a fatherly chastisement, which involves both temporal, meaning in this life, and eschatological consequences, end quote. Well, I see two problems also with this that I want you to consider, this view. First of all, I believe it's extremely exegetically weak exegetically weak, especially in light of the other passages that we've already considered in the book of Hebrews, to conclude that all someone's going to lose is somehow a blessing in this life or reward in the next, which is a whole other sermon topic, the loss of rewards in the, at the end of this age or at the consummation of our salvation. But it's exegetically weak. Consider with me, as you see in your sermon notes, what was said to us Already in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, where the inspired writer warned them. He said, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest at any time we should, what? Let them slip. In the Greek, the word slip, I know you recall this. It was the picture of a boat, not anchored, who drifts away, never to be recovered. I remember when we were preaching that, that I put in the illustration someone who had a kayak and they let it go out into the Atlantic Ocean, and they went to go get it 10 years later. Well, it's virtually impossible that you're ever going to find that again. And that's exactly what's meant there. It's not a loss of a reward. It's a loss of the the ship altogether. It's destroyed. It probably sunk to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. But do you remember there also in chapter 2 what he said in verse 3? How shall we escape? In other words, how shall we do it? There's no escape. If we neglect... The Greek word neglect there means depart from so great a salvation. You depart from this new covenant gospel that you have professed you believed and there's no escape. Does that sound like a loss of rewards? No, it sounds like a loss of something you said you professed to believe. That is the salvation of your soul. What about chapter 3? Just continuing here, just to really show that this is exegetically weak, this interpretation. Take heed, brethren, he said in chapter 3, verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you of an evil heart of unbelief in departing, leaving, forsaking a living God. Or, I'm sorry, the living God. Verse 14, last one. We are made partakers of Christ 
if, there's the conditional word, beloved, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. The idea is there, if you don't hold to your confession unto the end with confidence steadfast unto the end, guess what? You're not a partaker of Christ. Not that you lose reward. So you see, it's just exegetically sloppy and it's exegetically very weak. But also, secondly, it's highly problematic because it's really inconsistent with the overall context that's been demonstrated in this entire letter up until chapter 6, especially how the writer's been employing the use of the wilderness generation and the analogy. Now, do you remember those who perished in the wilderness back in the Old Testament? They didn't just lose a couple blessings. The Bible describes them as being cut off from God. They lost everything, church. And then think about in the immediate context, this interpretation is very problematic because look at today in verses 7 and 8. He cites Deuteronomy 11 to communicate not some sort of heavenly chastisement, but look at verse 8 with me. That which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh into cursing whose end is what? To lose something? Have something taken away from them? No. Whose end is to be burned. So I think that this is highly problematic trying to describe this as someone who's just losing rewards. You see what happens when people try to interpret this passage and these other warning passages in Hebrews is speaking of a genuine believer either losing salvation or losing rewards. It's riddled with difficulty and tension. Now, such interpretations. I think they seem to force the text into a conformity that's foreign to the text itself as we've studied it. And it grossly minimizes several things in their errors. You see it in your sermon notes. They minimize the overall context. They minimize the meaning and the grammatical definition of the words. And they minimize an appreciation, or that is a proper appreciation, of the original audience who were what? Converted Jews who could have had, realistically we know from the other epistles, a temptation to blend Old Covenant Judaism with New Covenant Gospel. And they grossly and lastly minimize the description and the attribute of God as being long-suffering and patient with sinners. And so it's for all of these reasons that I pray you're prepared to agree that the third interpretation that we look at lastly is the correct interpretation. The third interpretation that's held by the Reformed Church is that this is evidence of a professor, but not a genuine believer. These warning passages, especially verses 4 and 5, are describing a professor of the faith, but not a true, genuine believer. This interpretation is exegetically harmonious with all of Scripture. It doesn't have tension with all of the Scriptures that describes that those who are truly of the Lord's will be kept by the Lord. They will be secured by the Lord. This interpretation, as we have spent last Sunday and this Sunday and and even other places in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, It is balanced in its grammatical and its historical interpretation of the passages. And it is respectfully sensitive to the immediate context. 
Basically, when I say that, I mean we preach what the Bible says. We're sensitive to the immediate context surrounding it. So when there's the warning passage that if you're professing these things, you will indeed hold to the very end. But if you don't, then you're evidencing yourself that you truly were never born again to begin with. This view that it's a professor and not a believer in verses four and five is harmonious with all of scripture. It's balanced in its handling of the meaning of the words in its grammatical interpretation and it's respectfully sensitive to the immediate context that this was an original Jewish audience. All right, we have to move on to closing thoughts. I began today's message by drawing our attention to the doctrine of justification. And I would like to end by drawing our attention again to that blessed doctrine of justification through a couple quotes from Martin Luther. The first one you see is Luther says, this doctrine justification is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets, it alone nourishes, it alone builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. He goes on to say in another place, the article of justification is fragile, not in itself, of course, but it's fragile in us. I know how quickly a person can forfeit the joy of the gospel. And then he says, lastly, every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. Beloved, as we come to an end of really verses one, well, it began in chapter five, uh, verse 11. We know, beloved, down all the way through chapter 6, verse 8, that such sober warning passages are treating the subject not of someone who's just not growing or obtaining a PhD in theology, becoming spiritually mature with knowledge, etc., etc., but it is rightfully dealing with and warning against taking our eye off the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ, by which He is the sole mediator between us as sinners and a righteous, holy God, taking our eye off of His propitiatory, redemptive cross work by which He shed His blood that we may be purchased, justified, and redeemed before God as condemned sinners, Beloved, that is crucifying Christ afresh, rejecting Him and putting Him to an open shame as if it were making a public example of Him as if He was a criminal, but not the Messiah. Oh, may we see as we move forward in this text that our cause, the church of Christ, is to continually cast all of our hope, cast all of our cares upon Christ and Christ alone. As we approach this supper later in our service today, may these thoughts of how precious Christ is, what He says He has accomplished, may, may, we, may these thoughts afresh be in our minds, beloved, as we look to Him as our Redeemer, as the one who has truly bought us and He keeps us unto the very end. 
Amen.